0: would take your Bible and turn with me to 1st Timothy chapter 1, 1st Timothy chapter 1 beginning at verse 3. Uh, beloved, we will study in our time together 1st Timothy chapter 1 verse 3 down to the end of verse 7. Friends, I have titled this morning's sermon, Resist False Teaching. Resist False Teaching. 1st Timothy chapter 1 beginning at verse 3. Dear friends, let us read God's word together. The word of the living God says, Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Beloved, he who has ears to hear, let him hear the word of God. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for this time together. And Lord, we do beseech your mercy now as we come to this word. Lord, we know that your word... You uh, give, Lord, that your word you bring to enlighten our minds and enlarge our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see more clearly who you are, who we are, and who Christ is. So, Spirit, lead us to contend for the gospel, to continue to fight for the truth of your word. Lord, help us to uh, have it in our own minds. And, Lord, as a church, Lord, that we might be a people uh, who love the truth. And, Father, in that, love you. Lord, have mercy on us. Now we pray in Christ's name, Amen. Well, friends, First Timothy. Uh, last week we spent some time looking at this salutation, the greeting, and uh, we were reminded that Paul is writing to his beloved son in the faith, Timothy. Uh, and as we see in verse three, Timothy has a pretty tall order. Verse three, we're reminded that Paul, having been released from prison, remember he was in, under house arrest in Rome because he had appealed to Caesar. Rather than being uh, being condemned and tried by the Roman procurator there in Judea, he was sent to Rome for trial. As a Roman citizen, he could appeal to the emperor for a verdict. And so he's gone to Rome. He's been there for about two years. And then he appeared before Nero Caesar in the first audience. And Nero let him go. And so this is a little brief time that Paul has. He's doing some ministry. And it looks like in verse 3 that he's gone back east from Rome and that he's been returning to some of the churches that he planted. And he has sent Timothy to the city of Ephesus. So Paul, as he's been continuing his journey, has said to Timothy, Timothy, I want you to stay in Ephesus and I want you to continue this ministry. He is to stay at Ephesus, Timothy is, and he is to preach. Now, friends, here in verse 3, we see a little bit of the uh, God-given, Christ-directed order and uh, governance of his church. So we see, friends, that God gave, that Christ, when he ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. And of those gifts, he gifted first apostles, and then he gave elders, and we see teachers, and all the gifts that the Spirit has given to the church. And so we're seeing a little bit of this God-given order, that Paul has appointed Timothy, and Timothy is going to preach in Ephesus. And so, friends, again, we see that Timothy is one of many elders in Ephesus. Now, friends, we see in Acts chapter 17 and 18 that Paul planted that church in Ephesus, that he spent a good amount of time there. Almost an entire two years, Paul was there in Ephesus preaching and teaching daily In the hall of Tyrannus, right in the heat of the day when nobody else wanted to get together to study, Paul rented out that space and continued to pour the word of God into the people of God, into those who came to hear. And God blessed the ministry of Paul. God blessed his word. And it went forth from this port city of Ephesus all into the surrounding province of Asia. So as the scripture says, all in Asia heard of the gospel of God, of the gospel of Christ. God greatly blessed Paul's ministry there in Ephesus. We see that's where Apollos was, uh, you know, he was there with Prisca and Aquila. So Ephesus has a a pretty strong influence. But we see, friends, that there's a danger of false teaching. And that's to which, that's the circumstance that Paul is writing. He's instructing Timothy to fight for the truth. He says, Timothy, remain at Ephesus, and as you're preaching there and ministering to the church, you must charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So in the church at Ephesus, there were those who were teaching, and they had certain teaching authority. Uh, This could have been some of the elders. It could have been uh, other uh, skilled teachers of the word, but they were teaching, as Paul says here in verse 3, different doctrine. What he means is, is they are teaching as the truth of God something that was not contained in the Word of God. They were going outside the bounds of orthodoxy. And we see a little bit more of what that looks like, that different doctrine included. We see myths and endless genealogies. And so, friends, What we see from the example of the church at Ephesus is that every church must continue to resist false teaching and must be contending for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints because this is a perennial problem in the church of God that false teaching emerges not always from the outside, but sometimes from within, sometimes within those uh, who have certain teaching ministries within the church. And so we see Paul is saying, Timothy, your main charge right now is to make sure that these false teaching is stopped and that those teachers uh, stop teaching this false doctrine. Friends, uh, you'll recall that in the Old Testament, there was the perennial problem of idolatry. So for example, friends, you remember that when uh, God took his people up out of the land of Egypt and he planted them in the land of Canaan, he said, my people, you must get rid of the idols of these Canaanites. Don't hold on to these idols. Don't covet their silver. Don't covet their gold. You have to break them down, destroy them completely. And you must not intermarry with these unbelievers. Because if you do, eventually... They will lead your heart astray from me. And this was the story of God's people under the Old Covenant. They began to go after the Baals and the Ashtoreth. They began to incorporate into their worship of Yahweh, of the Lord God, of their fathers. They began to take these idolatrous elements into their doctrine, into their worship. And sooner or later, they were bowing down. To the actual. They were serving the Baals, and they had gone far afield in idolatry. But friends, in Ephesus, it's not just the crass form of idolatry that's a temptation. Remember, there's the Temple of Artemis is there, this is a center of very vibrant pagan worship and religion. But friends, it's also the subtle idolatry of ideas. And friends, that's the danger for us as a church. Not the crass idolatry where we're bowing down to statues of Buddha or to totem poles. You and I are probably not building golden calves and putting them in our closets to worship. But we do have idols. We make idols of ideas. We take our own perception of God. We take our own likeness of what we think God should be like or what God should do or how God should act. And we form a God in our own image in our own likeness. Friends, that's what these teachers are doing in Ephesus. Instead of coming back to the Word of God and saying, we will submit to what God has revealed Himself to be, His plan of redemption in Jesus Christ, His purpose in our salvation, these teachers are saying, well, you know, I think my God, my Jesus, would be more like this. I think that my God would act in this way and so subtly, softly, almost imperceptibly, they are moving the church away from the truth of God off to false teaching. So friends, again, we want to know what does the Bible say? Uh, Friends, in the Protestant Reformation, there was a uh, a Latin phrase. It was called Sempre Reformanda. Sempre Reformanda. Uh, You guys know the uh, Marines Right? Their slogan is Semper Fi, right? And it means always faithful. Always faithful. Semper Reformanda means always reforming. That is, the church of God is always to be saying, Father, help us identify the idolatry, the sinfulness in our own hearts in our own lives, and in the corporate life of our church. Help us in our doctrine, in our devotion, in our faith and practice to be conformed more and more to the Word of God. We're always measuring, whatever practice it is, whatever ministry endeavor it is, we're saying, is this grounded on the truth of God's Word? Because we want to always be returning to the Scriptures. Sempre reformanda. Always. Reforming, And we submit to the Word of God alone. Now in verse 4, we see that the source material for these false teachers is that they have left the authoritative Word of God and they have sought out another authority that is not a true source of revelation, but they have gone to what we see here as myths and endless genealogies. So in their teaching... These false teachers in Ephesus are spending a lot of time on these myths. Now, what are these myths? Well, Paul says the same thing to Titus, right? We see in uh, Titus 3.9 that Paul says, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, uh, for they are unprofitable and worthless. He goes on to talk about uh, Jewish myths. So these are myths and most likely, friends, they have to do with the Apocrypha. Uh, friends, you know, uh, if you've ever seen a Roman Catholic Bible, you ever notice how the Roman Catholics have more books in their Bible? And sometimes, friends, when when uh, Catholics are converted and they come to Christ and they, they look and they're like, oh, man, the Protestant Bible is so much different. There, there's not all these books like the Book of Tobit and the Book of Jubilee and these books. Well, friends, the reason is is because as the church, we recognize that Those books of the Apocrypha, those intertestamental books were not God inspired. Uh, They're Jewish literature and they might have great value as literature. First and second Maccabees give us a lot of information about the Jewish wars, but they are not on the standard of the word of God. So these false teachers have gone to these Jewish myths, this Jewish literature, and they're devoting themselves to it. That becomes their source material that becomes the authoritative revelation and it's leading the church astray. Secondly, they're devoting themselves to endless genealogies, uh, which could be that they're spending time on uh, trying to dissect all the genealogies of the Old Testament and trying to figure out um, different stories to go along with it, or perhaps they're even spending time in all of the pagan genealogies that are around them. Friends, just by way of passing, have you ever noticed when you read your Bible, there's a lot of genealogies? There's a lot. Take Genesis, 1 Chronicles, for example. And, friends, sometimes those are some of the hardest things for us to read. But I'll tell you a genealogy is meant to give you a big picture of the faithfulness of your God. A genealogy is leading God's people to see the fidelity of God to His promise throughout the generations. When you see a genealogy, friends, like you go to Matthew and you see all the way from Uh, from Adam, you know, all the way from David to Jesus, you see the faithfulness of God to keep his covenant, to preserve the line and lineage of David. Friends, a genealogy is a big picture of God's faithfulness generation upon generation upon generation. And generally, friends, when you actually deep dive into some of those names, you see so many testimonies of grace like Rahab. Uh, And you think of You know, Judah and and his relationship with Tamar. You think of David and Bathsheba and Solomon being born from that. Friends, you just see so much. Your genealogies are worth digging into. But friends, what Paul is saying here is that these folks weren't using those genealogies the way that they were intended to be. Uh, They were using them for speculation. Uh, They might even be looking at pagan mythology and pagan genealogies. And the upshot of this, friends, is that in their teaching, these false teachers in Ephesus are focusing on speculation rather than, Paul says, verse 4, the stewardship from God that is by faith. So, friends, Paul is saying, Timothy, in your teaching, major on the majors. Major on the majors. Make sure that as you're teaching The church is believing everything that the Word of God teaches. Because, friends, when we depart under speculation and we don't remain on the uh, stewardship that is from God, uh, we find ourselves in deep water. So the stewardship, friends, again, is that entrustment of God, that gospel that God has given to His church. And it is to be received, it is to be uh, rejoiced in by faith. So, friends, what we see is that The truth of God really is important. You know, it's not just having more nuggets of knowledge in your brain. But that, friends, as we devote ourselves to the Word of God, to a diligent study of the Word of God, it begins to transform the way we live. And that's what Paul is getting at. As we are captivated by the gospel, there is a transformation. The gospel transforms the people of God. Paul said the same in Romans 1. Remember, he said, in the, he said, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Paul is saying in the gospel, in the true doctrine of God, in this stewardship that he has given to his people, there is power, that that dynamis, That sovereign might of God by which He does what only God can do. He saves. He gives life. He gives the new birth. He sanctifies and He satisfies His people. Friends, as a church, we don't need to be looking for other authorities. We We don't need to say, well, you know, I I need to, you know, Christ in His word is not sufficient for this area of my life. You know, think about it this way, friends. You know. We, uh, we're raising children, right? We're raising grandchildren. And, and we think of all the difficulties that come with raising children. And so we might think, well, you know, God's Word just doesn't speak to a 21st century child. I mean, you know, these kids have iPhones and they have Netflix and they have all these, you know, all of this media that these first century believers didn't have. And so, friends, we can think God's Word isn't relevant. The gospel isn't pertinent to my children in this time, in this place. But friends, the Christian realizes this is the word of God. This is the word of God that is able to save. This is the word of God by which he trains us for that service. So friends, uh, I guess the question comes down to this. Do we believe that God's word is sufficient for our lives? Do we think that it's sufficient to train us how to know God and love him, how to serve him in the world? Because Paul is saying that when this stewardship from God, when this word is proclaimed and understood, it transforms the lives of God's people. Verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. verse 5, Paul says this is our aim. Timothy, our goal is that we ourselves might be transformed and that those to whom we preach and teach might be changed. Love that issues from a pure heart. Friends, you remember those great commandments. Jesus was once asked, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Well, Jesus said, it is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And a second or derivative is like it, that you love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Friends, the the command of God, how you and I are to live, our obedience to Christ is summed up in love. Love for him. Love for his church. Love for others. That holy affection that motivates us to serve and to teach. See, friends, what Paul is, is hammering home is that the false teachers didn't understand the root problem. They didn't understand the root problem of sin. They did not understand that man must be born again. That his heart must be changed. That life must be changed birthed into him or else he cannot love. Dear friends, our sin problem is more than bad behavior. Our sin problem runs deeper than simply, you know, our off-colored words or our bad choices that we make. It's more than just an external problem because, friends, if it were an external problem, our sin... Then, if all that was, is then well, what we would need is just more discipline, more training. But friends, the Bible tells us that sin has permeated every aspect of our humanity. And that's why Paul can say in Ephesians 2 that we are by nature dead in trespasses and sins. We are corrupt. Genesis 6 tells us that when God looked down on the children of man before the flood, he saw that every intention of man's heart was only evil continually. David says, um, you know, I was uh, in sin did my mother conceive me? Friends, the scriptures say that it's something inside us that is the corrupt root from which the poison fruit of our sinful words and works come. And the false teachers are just dealing with the external. They're just pointing to the sin outside and they're never Able to address the need inside. But Jesus does. He looks at Nicodemus, the most religious man of his time. He looks at Nicodemus with all of his training. He looks at Nicodemus with all his education. He looks at Nicodemus with all his outward piety. And he says, Nicodemus, you know what? You must be born again. Unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Lest man be born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus says your sin problem, oh, human being, is not something you can fix. God must save you. God must change you. God must give life. And Paul says, when we preach, when we teach, that's what we're doing. We're, we're preaching to dead men. We're teaching to folks that by nature don't have eyes to see and ears to hear or hearts to love their God. But we know and God has promised that as His Word is sown, He will give life. And some will see. And some will believe. And some will be saved. And so friends, Paul is saying, Timothy, when you preach, remember our aim is New life. Love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Friends, this is the fruit of the new birth. The fruit of the new birth is seen in holy affection. The evidence that we are new creatures in Christ Jesus is our holy love for God and for one another. And, friends, the upshot of that, the fruit of that is a pure heart. Friends, the Christian... United to Christ, born again of the Spirit, sealed by faith. He stands before God and says, Lord, you know who I am. Father, you know my sin. You, you know my guilt. You know all the iniquities that I've tried to hide from others. Lord, there's nothing that you don't know. And, and Father, I lay it all at your feet and pray, Father, have mercy upon me. Forgive me. The true believer has a pure heart because he is being transformed. Into the likeness of Christ. This is Christ like character, a pure heart, and a good conscience. He has a good conscience in his work. He is not double tongued, he's not putting on a mask. Friends, sometimes Christianity is is seen as a masquerade, right? If it's all about the external, friends, then what is it? Appearance is everything. Just make sure it looks good on the outside. But what does Jesus say to the Pharisees? He looks at the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were religious people. They gave all, they tied to everything, even their mint, dill, and cumin. It was in their their little herb garden. If they found a dime on the street, they would go home and they'd make ten pennies, and they'd put one penny in the temple treasury. These Pharisees externally looked like whitewashed. They they looked so clean. But inside, they were full of dead men's bones. Because, friends, that's what man-made religion does. Man-made religion is all about the external. Because that's all man can do. Man-made religion says you must do more to please God. Man-made religion says you must refrain from this in order to please God. Man-made religion says, these are the steps you need to take in order to be right with God. But God's religion, the gospel of his grace says, Jesus did it all. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourself. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. So the Christian has a good conscience. Not because he's sinless, but because his Savior is sinless and faithful. And the fruit of that love is a sincere faith. Friends, Paul is saying is that when the gospel is preached and when the church hears and believes the word of God, what is birthed in the soul is sincere faith. Again, it's not a it's not a masquerade, it's not simply going through the motions. It's not just religion for religion's sake. It is a true communion with God, a true fellowship with his son, Jesus. And there's a sincerity of that faith and that love. You remember when Jesus, uh, the children were coming near Jesus? And by the way, Jesus loved kids, absolutely loves kids. He still loves kids. But Jesus you know, all the kids were coming and the apostles look at these kids. They're bringing their, even their little babies. And the apostles say, get these snotty kids out of here. They don't, they don't have time. Jesus doesn't have time for these little ones. What does Jesus say? He rebukes his disciples and he says, suffer, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belong the kingdom of God. I say to you, unless you receive the kingdom of God like a little child, you will never make Jesus says, you see these children? They love me sincerely. They want to be with me. They want to come and abide with me and dwell with me. He says this is the posture of a true believer. This is the attitude of one who's been born of the Spirit. A sincere faith. A genuine trust and love for King Jesus. That is what the Gospel does. That's what is being evidenced in a new believer. So Paul says, Timothy, you preach for heart change. You don't have the power to do it in yourself, but God is promised by his word. He will save. He will sanctify. He will bless his church. So friends, that's got to be our aim as well as a church. You know, friends, when we are born again, when we come to faith in Christ, When we are united to the Son, our lives do change. You know, friends, we think about it this way. You know, if we are in Christ, not only has our sin been atoned for, but the Spirit has come and He has given us liberty. He has given us freedom. He has given us new desires. And out of that holy affection, now we genuinely pursue what is pleasing and acceptable to God. And that's where those works of obedience come from. That fruit of the new birth. Friends, again, you are not saved by your works. You and I, and our obedience to the Word of God, does not contribute a single bit of merit to our salvation. Jesus sent His righteousness alone. That is what God has reckoned to you, that is the basis of your justification, your pardon. Your security before God is in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. You can't add to it. You can't take from it. But if you are united to Christ, friend, this union with Christ, this new birth will always inevitably bring the consequences of good works and obedience. You're not justified by your works, but you are justifiable to obedience to Christ. And friends, that's why James can say, if there are no works, if you have no love for Christ, if you have no love for God, if your faith isn't sincere, if you don't have a pure heart and a good conscience before God, friend, be careful, because you may not be what you profess to be. You may be one whom Jesus will say on the last day, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. Yes, you were in my church. Yes, you were on the rolls of the church. You even served in a Sunday school. You did all of these things, but you didn't do them because you loved me. You didn't do them because you were trusting in me. You had other motives. You had other desires that were motivating those good works. But I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. You were never united to me by faith. Friends, Paul says, Timothy, keep the gospel front and center. Keep the word of God front and center because it is by this that God's people will be saved and the church will be built up. And then he gives the warning in verse 6 and 7. Friends, man-made religion as it turns away from the word of God, it, it falls into a ditch. And one of the ditches that, that these false teachers in Ephesus are falling into is that they're going off into vain discussion, profitless discussions, because, verse 7, they desire to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, friends, the relationship between the law and the gospel is vitally important. Absolutely indispensable. And Paul has spent a lot of time when he wrote Romans, tracing it out. And he's going to spend a little more time in the next few verses talking about it. But friends, the law of God, it's, a, it's a, like a school teacher, Paul says in Galatians. It's like a, a guardian of sorts. God announced his law at Sinai, not in order to be a means by which you establish your own righteousness, But the law of God is to reveal His glory and holiness and thus our sin and rebellion and to show us our need for the Savior. It is a ministry of condemnation. You cannot find righteousness for yourself in your law-keeping. But that's what these false teachers and Ephesus are saying. They're saying, oh, well, you need Christ. If you really want to be accepted with God, if you really want to be in His good graces, if you want to be in the top tier of the Christian, if you want to have the elevated status in the kingdom of God, what you need to do is you need to submit to all of these regulations, perhaps circumcision, perhaps celebrating the feasts of Israel, tabernacles and Passover and others. And maybe even you should take on some of the kosher laws. If you really want to be a good Christian, if you really want to please God, you need to go back under the law and its regulations, forgetting that when Christ came, he fulfilled what the festivals were indicating. It was Jesus who, when the Pharisees came to him and were chastising him for his his disciples eating with unwashed hands, he says, look, it's not what goes... Into a person that defiles sin because the food goes in the mouth, it goes in the stomach, and it's expelled. But I tell you, it's what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Because it's out of the mouth, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And it's out of this corrupt heart that come murder, adultery, idolatry, and all manner of evil things. But to eat with unwashed hands doesn't defile anyone. And by this, Mark says, Jesus declare all foods clean. So in contrast to the clear teaching of Scripture, these false teachers in Ephesus were saying, no, 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 this is the way that you have to be. And friends, you know, we would like to think that that's not something that affects the Christian church. But that's a tendency even in our own area. There are people who live here in our county, in our cities, who still hold to that idea of Torah observant righteousness. That you need Jesus, but you also need to keep all of these statutes of the ceremonial law. And Paul's saying, "You, these teachers don't understand what they're saying. They're putting a yoke on the disciples. They're just like the Pharisees. They're tying up burdens hard to bear and placing them on people's backs. But they won't lift them with their fingers. Because, friends, when you depart from the gospel." You don't, it's not that you don't become religious. It means that you're devoting yourself to something else. And in these false teachers' casing, they're making the law of God an idol. Now, the law is good, friends. You would not know what sin is apart from the law. Paul says, if I would not have known what it means to covet unless the law had said, do not covet. But you know what happened when the law said, don't covet, Clay? and aroused the sinful passion within me. And I began to covet all the more. Because the law cannot free me from sin. The law can't deliver me from my iniquities. The law can't save me from the wrath to come. All it can do is say, you need a Savior. Because the righteousness that God demands is not a righteousness you can produce. That's what the law says. In John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress, uh, there's, a, there's an episode where one of, the, one of the characters is talking about his conversion. And he talks about this old man who is Moses coming. And he comes up to this man. He begins to beat him over the head. And he says, why are you beating me? And he says, because I don't know what else to do. The law of God can't bring salvation, friends. It can't point us to the Savior. Because what the law teaches us is that right. you and I are where you and I were idolaters, where you and I were thieves, where we were Sabbath breakers, where we were doing all of this iniquity, Christ was faithful. Christ was true. Christ was holy. Jesus did for you, O Christian, everything that God requires of you. The perfect, holy, law-abiding life that He requires of us, Jesus did. He did it all. And he received the reward. For Moses says, God has promised in this law blessing for obedience, but he has warned of curses and judgment for disobedience. Friends, the law is meant to show you Christ in his glory. He lived the life you could not, he died the death you deserved to die. The curse of the law that was set upon you, Jesus received in his body on the tree. Jesus. Receive the reward of righteousness for you. And he received the curse of judgment for you. That's what the law was showing you. And when you're born again, friends, when you are coming to Christ, the law also now serves to show you the character of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to look like Jesus Christ? It means we begin to worship the Lord our God and Him only will we serve. So we've come to Christ and are united to Him, we do begin to think about hallowing God's name. You know, we used to use His name and invoke it for worthless purposes. It used to be a, a blasphemous utterance on our lips. But now we've been born again. Now we've come to Christ. And the law of God is training us. This is what the character of Christ is. And it is into this likeness that the Spirit is transforming you. So, friends, the law is good. It's very good. But it can't save you. Christ alone saves you. But man-made religion, false religion, always pulls our eyes off of Jesus in His sufficiency. And it puts our focus on something else, someone else. And Paul says, Timothy, you've got to fight because they have no understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Friends, these teachers are confident in their falsehood. They're confident in their erroneous doctrine, and it is uh, a plague on the church. So, friends, bring that home. Application. Friends, everything that you hear me preach and teach, don't take my word for it. Try it by the Scriptures. It is my God-given responsibility before God to be as faithful as I can and by His Spirit to open, to explain, to apply this word to you. But remember, Jesus says, call no man father. Take what you hear and bring it back to this standard, to this Bible. And not only me, friends, but your Sunday school classes, the TV preachers you hear, the folks you listen to on Facebook, The audio books that you download, friends, try it all by the standard of the word of God. And the evidence of the truth of the gospel is that those who are born again, those who have come to Christ, they are new creatures, friends. The gospel transforms the people of God into the likeness of Jesus Christ. The false teaching no, rather than promising freedom, it brings chains, And it brings more and more pain and destruction. So, friends, let us hold to the truth of God. Let that be front and center in our ministries here as a church and in our own teaching and preaching and ministry at home and in our works. Because, friends, just like Paul, we're trusting that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And for maybe today you haven't come to Christ. Maybe today you are. Like those Pharisees, you, you have gone through lots of religious activity, but you can't say before God, I have a sincere faith. I have a genuine love for King Jesus. Friend, if that's you today, let me ask you to cry out to God to change you, to give you a new heart, to give you a true affection for him. That as you come to Christ, you might also have a good conscience before him. And then you may know the life that the father promises in his son. So let's pray. Dear father, we thank you. Uh, that, Lord, you are so gracious to us. Father, we pray, have mercy upon us, Lord. Uh, our idols often run so deep. And Lord, we're not always even aware of all the erroneous doctrine that we have accumulated. Father, we pray, cleanse our minds, purify our hearts, shape and mold us, we pray, according to your word, that, Father, we might grow up into the likeness of Christ. Oh, Lord Jesus, please grant that we might be a people faithful to your gospel. And Lord, we pray, take that word Save your people. Build your church. Even to the ends of the earth, we pray. Father, all this we ask in Jesus' name.